Investors Chronicle. Companies and Markets Show. It's the 10th of November. Welcome back, listener. Also, welcome back to Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi, John. Hi, and Arthur Sants as well. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Very well, thank you. And uh, as you can hear there from home, Dan Jones is in the studio. It'll keep more than train strikes to keep you away, Dan. That's right. Well, yeah, the tube strike hasn't kept me away. The trains, fortunately, were running. Uh, And we are going to discuss strikes today. Uh, As it happens, uh, we are going to start with logistics, our cover story this week on companies that keep the world moving, uh, insofar as that's possible nowadays with various supply chain issues. Then we are going to discuss a result from last week, BT, its interims, and a bit of a bit of a terrible year so far for the company share price-wise. So we're going to dig into that. BT has had its own issues with strikes, of course. And in our final segment, we are going to be looking at the impact of uh, worker protests on companies, on the outlook for those companies, and with a little bit specifically on uh, some a couple of train-related companies, obviously. As we mentioned, there are various outages and strikes going on across the transport network at the moment, but it doesn't seem to have affected uh, every company too badly. So we'll, we'll come on to that at the end too. Yeah, well, our, uh, our contributors today know all too well about the, uh, the strikes and the blackouts. So um, news roundup before we get there. Uh, this morning, one of the world's biggest crypto exchanges, FTX, is on the brink of collapse after Binance ditched its rescue at the 11th hour. In a statement, Binance said, as a result of corporate due, di- due diligence, as well as the latest news reports regarding mishandled customer funds and alleged US agency investigations, we have decided that we will not pursue the potential acquisition of FTX.com. In the last few weeks, we've been bringing you updates on the demise of furniture retailer Made.com. The latest update is that Next will buy the brand and related intellectual property for £3.4 million, though this won't include its stock, leaving customers waiting on deliveries and refunds somewhat in the lurch for now. Elsewhere, budget airline Ryanair said it flew more people in the six months to 30th September than it did in the same period prior to the pandemic, and fares were also higher than pre-pandemic levels. However, the airline did warn that the outlook for the remainder of its financial year remained fragile and could be impacted by further COVID disruptions or geopolitical events. Shares in housebuilder Persimmon dropped 6% on Tuesday as post-Grenfell cladding costs soared more than fourfold. Analyst Jeffries also warned of a significant step down in dividend payments due to a worsening trading outlook. North Sea oil and gas producer Ithaca Energy has floated at 250p a share, valuing it at £2.5 billion. This makes it one of the largest independent producers on the market. Uh, Executive Chair Gilad Myerson said he was delighted with the IPA. And finally, Domino's Pizza shares rose by over 2% after they announced a further £20 million of share buybacks and said full-year cash profits should be in line with market expectations. Uh, This is just a flavour of some of the company's updates and analysis we've got on the website and in the magazine. Um, But that's all for me for now. And back to you, Dan, for the rest of the show. Thanks, John. Yeah, I think the 
Ithka. Uh, exec may be delighted, but shareholders or new shareholders may be less so given uh, how it started trading since listing. But uh, that's one to watch in future. We are going to start with our cover story this week, as mentioned. Uh, and it's all about logistics. It's all about supply chains to an extent. The kind of company, uh, Gemma, uh, who wrote the story, as you say in the piece, uh, the kind of company which until a few years ago, no one really paid too much attention to. No one really gave too much thought as to how their packages arrived on their doorstep from the other side of the world. Uh, obviously, with the pandemic and with the supply chain issues we've seen over the past couple of years, that has changed somewhat. Let's start, I mean, in the piece, you kind of track a hypothetical package from shipment all the way across, all the way across the seas, across the land and you know, to the door. Let's start with shipping. This is a topic we touched on in last week's magazine, as well as the cover story this week. Insofar as, you know, these huge uh, spikes we've seen in freight rates over the past couple of years have started to reverse, which is maybe insofar as what that says about shipping companies, a sign of things to come for the sector as a whole in the, the good times during the pandemic are now leading to slightly more complicated times. Yeah, I mean, shipping companies have had an amazing couple of years. Always surprises me, given the amount of ten attention that companies like BP and those Harbour Oil have, have received that, that shipping lines haven't actually, I don't know, attracted more interest because I think from the second quarter of 2020, their profits have exceeded about $400 billion. So they've really had an amazing time of it. But it seems like things are starting to unravel now. Um, so one of the sort of the consultant companies that, that study the sector have basically said all the warning signals are, are flashing red. Um, you're seeing demand getting a bit shakier and supply starting to, to rise. Because I think one of the important things to think about with shipping companies is so much depends on how many ships there are and what their capacity is. And I think when companies are doing really, really well, the temptation is to order more ships, which take two or three years to be built and emerge, by which point demand isn't necessarily going to be as high as it once was. So I think we're starting to see that play out now. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, uh, oil and gas, and it was a similar story there, you know, insofar as, you know, using the boom times to expand capacity right at the wrong moment. Um, as you say, capacity has been an issue, you know, that has been a problem. Ports being stocked full of ships have caused many of these supply chain issues we've been experiencing and everyone's been experiencing over the past few years. But obviously, it's not just uh, shipping as well. It's, you know, once a product gets to the port in the UK, it has to be transported across land. It has to be sent to a warehouse. It has to be uh, delivered, in short. And one of the things you look at in the piece is some of the UK logistics companies who, who again, are still flying a little bit under the radar, perhaps. Yeah, so I think for years, these companies have had an extremely unglamorous reputation, you know, haulage isn't really going to get anyone's pulse racing. But actually, given all the difficulties that retailers have had in the last um, couple of years, the importance of logistics has really come centre stage. So there are companies like Wincanton who actually have had a pretty good few months um, because they've been able to tackle a lot of the problems that retailers have experienced. So, for example, the driver shortages, Wincanton has sort of a training programme for, for drivers. So they managed to handle handle those problems a bit better than, than some other companies. Um, and they're trying to embrace automation a bit more in their factories to make everything more efficient. So I think 
if not glamorous, they certainly have a more respected reputation than they once did. Um, and investors seem to be getting a bit more interested in this space, mm-hmm. even though it is sort of famously low margin and asset heavy, really. And we have seen some M&A activity in the space as well in the past few months, too. Yeah, so um, Clipper Logistics, which was listed in the UK, been bought up by um, a big US rival um, for a fairly decent price. So I think there's a sense that the industry is going to start consolidating and maybe either private equity companies or other logistics companies from overseas might start looking to the UK for some, some interesting opportunities. Yeah, we should say on Wincanton, uh, they have got interim results on Tuesday. So uh, worth watching those and, and uh, making sure that the, the good times are continuing to roll, I suppose, before uh, running the rule of the company a bit further. Uh, it's not just transport, of course. You know, as the word logistics suggests, it's a lot more complicated than that. And in a lot of areas for retail, uh, these complications are continuing to increase. Uh, Amazon, obviously, is the is the no pun intended, prime example of, a, I suppose, a, a company that does delivery, logistics, fulfillment, all those things very well. It has huge operations dedicated to all these processes that we that we go into in the piece a little bit. And in many ways, they've kind of raised the stakes, haven't they, for other companies, other retailers. You know, the expectation that something will be at your door almost instantly has been produced by Amazon service and other retailers are perhaps struggling to catch up. I think that's fair, yes. One interesting thing the uh, the pandemic has generated, I suppose, is while some retailers have looked to outsource their logistics, so to the benefit of companies like Bencanton, others have done a bit of an Amazon and thought we want to bring this in-house because um, it's too risky having to rely on, on third-party companies. Um, so you've seen a bit of a move towards companies buying up logistics businesses in an attempt to improve their own sort of their own operations um so it'll be quite interesting to see how that plays out because i imagine it's it's easy it's harder than it sounds just buying a logistics company and hoping that everything works out so there may be a few a few hiccups down the road um but amazon is an interesting example because it's also started offering its logistics services to its rivals um, in an attempt to really secure its position in, in that world. So it will be interesting to see if it actually manages to expand its reach by encouraging sort of other retailers to use its logistic services, which have proved to be amazingly efficient. Um, so, yeah, it will be interesting space to watch, I think. And one, just sticking with retail, one area we've touched on in, in previous weeks and we look at a little bit again in this context is is uh, clothing companies and returns the process of you know returning unwanted items very popular to do so for people to buy a lot of items and return i don't know 70 percent of them something like that but logistically and, and financially that that is a, a potential problem area and perhaps one that logistics logistics companies can help with perhaps one though that even they won't be able to solve i think so because for retailers returns are just a complete nightmare because if you think about automating a process and trying to make it really efficient when you're getting packages to customers, it seems feasible. But when you're taking them back, there's a whole other raft of issues that need to be addressed. So whether the garment's clean or clearly been worn or damaged or I don't know, a whole load of issues which need to be dealt with by a, a human being. And I think because 
of that process that the garment has to go through is extremely labor intensive and expensive basically um so retailers particularly i think fast fashion retailers like asos and boohoo who sell their products at such a low price are trying to figure out ways of of getting around this problem so logistics companies are starting to step in and seeing it as, as a possible lucrative opportunity so clipper logistics who i mentioned a few minutes ago um specialize in retail and have a big returns division called boomerang um where it's hoping to to make some some good money i think but again logistics companies face many of the same problems it's labor intensive it's expensive and while they can charge retailers for the service they worry that they might be taking on a bit more than they've bargained for i think and there's the fear that margins might come under quite severe pressure uh, fittingly, we've done a bit of a whistle-stop tour of, of the piece. There is a lot more detail in, in the cover story. But, but let's move on to the final segment, as it were, of the journey, the, the quote-unquote last mile. And, and this is, again, a bit of a problem area for, for all kinds of companies, both supermarkets, you know, the, the classic struggle to make these economics work. And you see things like Ocado, you know, in some ways leaning on their logistics side and really touting the, their ability to sell that to other companies. We saw an announcement on that front the other week partly because it's so hard to make grocery retail work. Likewise, you know, you have in the last few years, the rise of Uber, Deliveroo, all these companies where achieving profitability over that, that last segment, that very small delivery uh, space is, is pretty difficult. Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting area because there are lots of innovative new ways that retailers are are testing out in terms of getting products to customers. So I know in Milton Keynes, they have these weird boxes on wheels are about the size of a microwave which drive themselves and bring deliveries to customers um but i think it's still quite uncertain about which which technical innovations will actually work um so it seems like companies like deliveroo are sweeping into this space to try and i don't know entice retailers with their offer of being able to get products to customers really quickly but then there is the big issue of margins again, because if you're delivering, I don't know, a pizza to someone, the restaurant probably makes quite a big margin on that pizza. So if they have to share it with a platform like Deliveroo, it's not really a big issue. But if you're delivering supermarket food, the margins are already so slim. How do you find out a way of divvying up the profits with a supermarket that they'll actually want to, mm. I don't know, engage with? Um so, again, I don't feel it's a, an area that's really, I don't know, come to a conclusion yet. It still seems quite up in the air about how that last mile will actually be arranged in the future. Yeah, it, it may be that the conclusion is it's simply unprofitable, especially in a world where a lot of private equity money or venture money is harder to come by. But but we shall see. Uh, all these issues are discussed in more detail in the piece. So do look out for that. Our cover story this week. But let's turn now to a result, a result from last week, one of the UK's highest profile companies, albeit certainly not one of the best performing at the moment, that is BT. Uh, it had interim results out last week. There was another bad reaction to those share price wise on top of what's already been a, a poor year. I think the shares are down by about a third now year to date. So so looking pretty tough at the moment. Um, BT facing a lot of issues. Other companies are in terms of cost pressures, inflationary pressures. And on top of that, it's it's got a vast capex spend to, to, to work through. Arthur uh, Sants joins us. Although, as John mentioned earlier, Arthur, you said you've been experiencing some 
intermittent blackout. So hopefully you'll uh, stay with us for this bit. But BT's results, uh, what did you make of them last week? Um, hi, Dan. Yeah, so the headline really to the results is inflation's really bad and BT is investing loads in CapEx because it building out open reach and transferring its customers over to fiber optics, which is a lot of manpower and also you need a lot of materials. So the CapEx is getting more expensive. Um, and that means that they are now forecasting to the bottom end of their normalized cash flow range, which is between 1.3 and 1.5 billion, but they now think it's going to be at the bottom end of that range. And in order to sort of offset this increase in costs, um, energy, goods, people, they are planning on increasing the number of um, the amount of cost cutting from 2.5 billion to 3 billion, um, which is pretty significant amount of cost cutting. And it seems the market basically isn't confident that BT is going to be able to cut costs, presumably given the amount of inflation that's going on. As one thing, trying to pass on costs to your customers through price rises, which they are doing, they're increasing prices with CPI plus an extra 3.9% on top of CPI. It's one thing doing that, but trying to actively cut more costs while inflation's increasing and energy prices are going up seems ambitious. Yeah. Uh, on the plus side, I suppose you do have, you know, you look at a couple of metrics, dividend yield, free cash flow yield, relatively attractive if you're prepared to wait. But but the question, I suppose, with BT and with this, uh, you know, the CapEx and open reach rollout in particular is how long do you have to wait? Yeah, so the, the dividend yield is now, obviously, as the price goes down, the dividend yield goes up. So you can buy that, that um, you can buy those dividends for cheaper and cheaper. I mean, the price, the share price dropped 10% on the day of the results. So that yields only up to 7%, which looks great. And also rising interest rates environment, You the companies which have bigger dividend yields are more appealing. And but I guess this is being offset by the fact that it um, they're promising something that's getting more and more expensive to deliver. And also there's the issue which the broker Numis has been raising in a number of notes, which is there are these altnets, which are small. City Fiber is the biggest one, but there's lots of them. And they're these independent um, net, um, fiber optic providers. And they will send and Numis what worries that this is going to increase competition for open reach and um people are going to go to the alt nets instead of to open reach and actually they point out the fact that um i think that already bt has lost a few customers for its um um free connections for open reach because they've been transferring over to the alt nets and actually maybe they're not going to get the returns that they wanted from open reach because they're going to have to they're going to, the returns are going to be competed down. The FT reported that, although the FT reported that BT were now planning on lowering the price of open reach in order to, I haven't said it yet, but basically implying, implied that they're to drive out competition from these outlets, which might be a good strategy. The analysts asked CEO Philip Janssen about it on the call and he was a bit cagey. It also sort of goes counter to the point that they're planning on increasing prices with CPI. He didn't really address that. So it's sort of going 
two directions. There's one side which is, oh, we're going to pass through these inflationary costs to our consumers. And then the other side of it is actually, well, it's being reported that your planning is called Equinox 2. They've got this plan to reduce prices significantly for open reach to price up these alt nets, which you think might be quite successful. If, if BT is having these problems in terms of inflation, the alt nets are also going to be experiencing it and won't have the same cash flow that BT does. So then it comes down to a regulatory story. Will the regulators step in? Sort of think it's anti-competitive to bring the, the prices down. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's discuss that a bit more because I think um, uh, Philip Anderson said on the analyst call. You know, they're in discussions with Ofcom, as other people have pointed out. You know, raising consumer prices by CPI plus three point nine, which they did this year, they will do next year. At a time when, and then putting through open reach cuts is you know a hard. Uh, square to circle shall we say that said you know th- as you said this is this is called or is likely to be called equinox 2 because it has happened in the past when they've put through these kind of discounts uh on their open reach service the the question of yeah how they do it is is still to be revealed and given you know open reach prices are also going up by inflation i guess you could just start from a lower base and then continue to write, uh, increase by inflation year on year um as you say, it kind of remains to be seen, but but they will definitely be conscious, I think, of, of the, the threat from these alt-nets, the threat that they're, they're not going to get as much business into open reach right, and they probably think the best way, in it, you know, out of a bad set of options, perhaps the best way to do that is to be really aggressive on price and use their scale and their, and their reach, as it were. Yeah, so I think, but then it becomes a story again, which you sort of asked me about, which is, They've been promising this investment and eventually it will deliver these returns, but it's been pushed out. It's getting more expensive. Now it's, oh, we'll get these returns. We just need to cut our prices first, which means less cash for the shareholders. But don't worry, we'll we'll push these alt nets out of business and then we'll have the space to increase prices later on. And then that's when you guys will get your returns. So it just seems to be that story again and again, where it's there's another thing that has to happen, another thing that has to happen. I think that I'm think about is that it's in these sort of it costs so much to change from copper to fiber and then you don't know what the next technological development is in the telecommunication sector and then maybe by the time they've finished this massive investment some other way to communicate with each other becomes more efficient or cheaper obviously there's like sort of satellite technology and things they use for telecoms and i don't really know for 100% sure where the future lies in telecoms, but presumably there'll be more invention and more development. There always is, and we always find better and faster ways to communicate with each other. And whether by the time BT gets to this stage it's promised us, will they still be sort of fit for use? I, I don't, I'm not sure about that, but um, it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, listeners as well who their own patients on just on a personal level may be wearing thin if they're in a countryside area waiting for fiber broadband and maybe some of those have some of those people have already turned to the alt nets um it was interesting as well actually that bt is calling for uh, the extension of the sunak super deduction which is due to expire next year i mean i think that was always designed to bring investment forward obviously when you have such a big capex program as bt does that any extension of that would be helpful and um and maybe that's something to keep an eye on because I don't think that's an extension is factored into any forecast at the moment. And that would certainly uh, help them in terms of the tax breaks it would afford them on new infrastructure, that kind of thing. But as you say, it is a slow process. And I want to bring Gemma 
back in here because something else that has made OpenReach progress slightly slower in recent weeks has been the the strike action uh, at BT. Uh, I think the company said in in these interims that uh, it was 40,000 connections were unable to be completed on time due to the strike action. Obviously, they say they will make this up, but equally, you know, that's another delay. That's more frustration on the part of uh, uh, the end client. So there's a risk there. There's a risk to the business, Gemma, and, and you cover that in a, in a separate piece this week, looking at strikes across a number of sectors and how they're affecting businesses. I do. So, yes, if you're waiting for a BT phone line or internet line, you might have experienced a bit of a delay um, because of a series of strikes over the last couple of months. Um, but the chief executive was pretty bullish about it, really. He was saying that it shouldn't have much of a financial impact on the business. Um, partly because when workers are on strike, they don't get paid. So obviously the company is saving money there. But there is this lingering unease, I think, about whether if the strikes continue, customers will basically just get fed up and move to an alternative provider. Um, and then as Arthur was saying as well, there's this risk of if the price increases do go through there might be more customers later in the year thinking this is too expensive and again looking for an alternative provider so i think while the company seems pretty upbeat at the moment analysts are a bit wary of of how the strike action is going to play out and uh that obviously has implications as well for for bt's own uh, forecasting i think there was some suggestion in the piece you, you wrote about a kind of a worst case scenario as it were of what might happen with connections and how that might derail um progress if these strikes do continue yeah so it was one of the analysts on the call um he had done a i don't know back of an envelope calculation i suppose saying that if the strikes continued there could be 200,000 lines that were not connected which would be material disruption and significantly um, significantly worse than perhaps what the company was suggesting. Um, but again, it's hard to know where the industrial action will go because um, the business seems very, very reluctant to increase pay any more than it, it has done already. Um, back in April, I think it offered a £1,500 flat rate pay rise for frontline workers. And Philip Janssen seems pretty, pretty reluctant to up that at all. Um, so it's hard to see how the negotiations are going to move forward. So more strike action could be around the corner. Yeah, we will keep an eye on that and on all parts of BT's business. Obviously, there's a bit of a overlap in some areas with the, the consumer side and the open reach side and the enterprise side. But but in short, you know, the, the strike action is not uh, helping that story there. Uh Gemma, as we, as we said, you, you've covered that in a bit more detail this week. Uh, but perhaps, you know, given given that both of you are remote today, uh, rather than in the studio with me, th this is a, a TFL strike rather than a train strike causing the issue. But it was notable in a different story you wrote just a couple of weeks ago that despite all the transport strikes we've seen this year, the train companies, you know, not, not having too bad a time of it this year. No, well, they don't seem to be. Um, First Group put its results out yesterday. Um, and their rail division was looking pretty strong. Um, the basic reason for that is because coming out of the pandemic, they've struck these new deals with the government called national rail contracts. Um, and these contracts are basically designed to shield train operators from the majority of the risk. So if sales plummet or costs go through the roof, 
train operators aren't exposed to, to the problem. So basically all the strike action has mainly been hitting the government rather than the, the companies themselves. So from that perspective, they're looking pretty well positioned. I think the interesting thing probably to look at is how their other divisions are doing, um, specifically sort of the bus bus world, where things are looking a, a bit shakier, I think. But from a strike perspective, they don't seem to be be too worried. Yeah, uh, this week we do in the the piece this in this week's issue we do touch on a, a couple of companies where strike action is is having a more material effect. Obviously, BT is one, uh, Royal Mail under its new name potentially another, but we'll leave that for uh, for readers of the issue to explore. Uh, let, let's wrap up with a couple of uh, train related companies though who have also reported in the past couple of days. You mentioned uh, First Group, uh, one I was thinking of Trainline, which uh, again you know certainly in the context of a uh, very tough UK market this year has had a good year. Um, results so far still been pretty good, and it's still kind of riding that reopening wave in many ways. Yeah, Trainline had a really tricky pandemic, um, unsurprisingly, really, but it seems to be coming back very strongly. So, particularly in Europe, I think it mentions France and Italy specifically in the results. Um, it seems to be gaining a lot of ground and becoming more popular for consumers. So that's driving the fastest growth I think but even in the UK things are picking up quite nicely um digital tickets seem to be becoming more widespread so yeah the platform remains very popular and now the demand's back yeah we should say for those who don't know this is the the website and app that allows you to book various train tickets and and even allows split ticketing now which is a popular way to save money by booking five journeys to get you from A to B rather than one, uh, if you're so inclined. Uh, there, there is one threat, I suppose, to train line in the background that, that we've spoken about in the past, which is the the suggestion that the government might be looking at some kind of centralised service, cannibalising what it does effectively. Yes, but as with most things with the government, nothing seems to be happening particularly quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so Grant Shapps announced this um, Great British Rail Plan last year which suggested making, yeah, as you say, a central central website which sells all the tickets and gets rid of all the quite confusing regional websites and different operating websites that that travellers are currently having to contend with. Um, so on on the face of it, that looks like it could be a threat for train line. But at the moment, things really seem to have ground to a halt. So investors seem pretty optimistic. And also, it's not impossible that train line will be used as a partner in that project. So it's not necessarily bad news. It's just uncertain, I suppose, which which a lot of investors don't like. Let's um, let's wrap up with a different transport related company, which, again, uh, has done relatively well this year. I'm thinking of Traxxas, the software company, which in the context, certainly of uh, uh, AIM stocks and software companies, a 6% year to date, year to date share price decline isn't too bad. Arthur, you covered their uh, latest figures the other day. What are your thoughts on Traxxas? Yeah, Traxxas, I rather they sort of, they have software that helps with the operational side. It helps with tracking and managing trains. And they also have some consultancy services to go alongside that to help optimize the, optimize the train service and bring costs down. They've done pretty, they've done well. As you said, the 6% share price decline is um, better than the wider software industry. And I feel hopeful about their prospects, A, because it seems that trains are going to 
be a big part of sort of moving to net zero. So it feels like there's a, there's a green aspect to that. And also, I think the strikes is actually good for Traxxas in the sense that if um, they're going to have to push up salaries and employing people becomes more expensive, um, these com train companies are going to be looking for ways to improve their margins and often turning to software businesses is a good way to improve your um, operational efficiency and improve those margins when your other costs are rising. And that's sort of a story about software in general, which is when people are getting more annoying and asking for more money, management tend to turn to other alternatives, which is often software. Actually, I was going to say earlier, but similar things happening at BT, it's hard to change, replace your engineers, but it's easier to replace the people who work in sales and customer management at BT who are also striking. And they talked about this new chatbot they have at BT called Amy, um, which will probably infuriate some customers. They have to communicate with the chatbot rather than a real person, but they're increasingly managing to sort of automate the whole onboarding process at BT. So there's a software story, both in trains and telecoms and any industry where um, people are getting more expensive. Um, it's usually probably a good thing for the software companies that operate in that industry as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, the use of the word annoying to describe uh, uh, people is a, a interesting term, isn't it? But certainly from a management's perspective, that's how these negotiations will be going this year on an annoying basis, I think. But nonetheless, they're, they're discussions that every um, management team is going to be having, and that is the, the world we're in at the moment. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of today's show. So thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Gemma and Arthur for bearing with us and logging in remotely on this uh, strike-affected day. Thank you to John, as ever, as well. And we will see you again next time for another Companies and Market show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.